0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 19. Today, we explore the story of Marion Baker. Marion Baker was a motorcycle policeman on the Dallas Police Force. He has an interesting position to play in this drama. He was the very first policeman inside the Dallas School Book Depository. and his actions, created the only other crucial timestamp besides the Zapruder film. A timestamp that would ultimately prove to be essential in proving that Lee Harvey Oswald was indeed the killer. Or indeed was not. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 19. There are so many actors in this grand drama that is the story of the Kennedy assassination, each one with a unique part to play. This act of the play starts with an important appearance by Dallas motorcycle policeman Marion Baker. Others will make their way upon the stage in short order. Marion Baker was riding on one of the police motorcycles that were in tight formation around the motorcade that day in Dallas. Dressed in that very familiar look of a motorcycle cop, you know, The hard white half-shell motorcycle helmet and the high boots with a high shine that are such a trademark of these imposing-looking officers as they ride upon their imposing-looking motorcycles. His position in the motorcade placed him on Houston Street as that first shot rang out. It was a spot not far past where you make the turn off of Main Street and onto Houston Street. Marion Baker had a keen ear keener than most that day. At the moment the first shot rang out, he knew it was a shot and he was pretty sure that it came from the Texas School Book Depository. Baker's testimony to the Warren Commission was given on March 24, 1964 and it was important in establishing whether there was any possibility at all that Oswald could be placed on the sixth floor at the moment the shots occurred. It was a matter of seconds, really, in the analysis. He was known as M.L. Baker to those that knew him well, and he had been on the force for 10 years, most of his adult life. He was 32 years old in 1964. Originally from Blum, Texas, he had moved to Dallas around the time he was in the sixth grade. His thick southern accent was the trademark of a homegrown Texan from that part of the country. He was an experienced motorcycle officer who had been on the motorcycle detail for the last seven or eight years. Like a typical cop on the force, he started out by attending the Dallas Police Academy. It was a four-month course that cops took before they made their way out onto the street. Baker got to work early that morning on November 22nd. Around 8 a.m., he got his instructions. The assignments started with Chief Curry and eventually to the sergeant in charge and finally to M.L. Baker himself. The original instruction that morning was that M.L. Baker would ride his motorcycle right next to the president's limousine. But by the time they got to Love Field, well, things had changed. Baker's sergeant informed them that no one would be riding next to the presidential limousine. As luck would have it, this change would put M.L. Baker in a unique juxtaposition on Houston Street at the very moment of the first shot. At the moment of the first shot, he would literally be facing the shooter. Had the change not been made that day, M.L. Baker would have sped off with the rest of the motorcade to Parkland Hospital. As it were, he was drafted by circumstance to be that cop that cop that recognized right away that it was a shot and recognized right away that he needed to get inside the depository building. Who knows? Had he been riding next to the president that day, would it have turned out differently altogether? There are so many what-ifs. So Baker's new assignment was now clear. He and his motorcycle would be repositioned. He would basically fall in toward the rear of the cars behind the last press vehicle. There were four of them, and those vehicles were both behind a Secret Service vehicle as well as the president's limousine and the vice president's limousine as well. So basically close to the end of a caravan of seven vehicles. It was a long enough chain of cars that the front of the motorcade was making the left from Houston onto Elm Street at just about the point that M.L. Baker was making the right turn from Main Street onto Houston Street. Baker would describe it as half a block difference from where the president was. Right as Baker was making the turn, a strong gust of wind caught Baker and he almost lost control of the motorcycle. The gust came from the due north right at him. Baker got control of the cycle and it took a good 20 to 30 feet to get it back under control again. Just about then, the sound of the first shot came upon the scene. Before the week of the president's visit... Baker had just taken some time off. He had been out deer hunting, and the pop of a rifle was fresh in his mind. Instantly, he recognized the sound. It was definitely a rifle shot to him. The pop immediately spooked a pack of pigeons at the top of the building, and they began to disperse. Before Baker could react, the second and the third shots went off, and to his recollection, it was bang, Bang, bang. They were pretty evenly spaced, all three shots. The pigeons brought his eye to the top of the depository building, but he didn't see anything as it was just a glance. He was determined to get closer, and he immediately revved the motorcycle's engine and pushed forward to get closer to the book depository, which was still about two hundred feet to the north at Houston and Elm. He sped there quickly and pulled up about 10 feet away from the signal light at Houston and Elm and quickly parked the cycle. His police radio was on right up until the point that he shut the cycle off and dismounted. The last thing he heard was a call from police chief Curry. Loud and clear over the receiver, Curry said, get some men up on that railroad track. Chief Curry thought the shot came from there. Baker would later relay to the Warren Commission that he was not surprised at Curry's call for men up on the railroad track. In Baker's own words, he would tell the commission that at that moment, he thought everyone at that time thought these shots came from the railroad track. Baker felt like he had been in a better position to understand where the shots came from, so he continued on his path toward the depository building. Baker was still about 45 feet from the front entrance to the depository, but he stopped for a moment to take note of the activity that was happening in the developing chaos. He looked down Elm Street toward the triple underpass and in what had to be a surreal moment, saw people down on the ground right on the sidewalk, grabbing their children. There were a lot of people rushing toward the area we now know as the Grassy Knoll. Baker himself estimated that there must have been five or six hundred people that began to scatter in various directions, looking at least for cover from the gunfire and then seemingly a group beginning to run up toward the hill. Those images were still clear in his mind, even though it was some four months now after the event that he was recalling. What was also clear was a man who ran out into the crowd and then back into it. This point was never explored in his questioning that took place before the Warren Commission. He was to say no more than just that about the man who was running in the other direction. Baker's mind returned to what was next for him. It was to dash into the depository building as quickly as he possibly could on the chance that he could confront the shooter before he got out of the building. He took off again It took only a few seconds, but he was now through the front doors and on his way to a second swinging door. He hadn't realized it, but Roy Truly, the manager of the depository, had seen Baker on his dash. Truly, standing outside of the depository still, turned and began to follow Baker back into the building. Baker was busy making his way through the front doors and burst into the lobby. There were other people going inside, too, at just the moment Baker began his trek inside. Baker immediately yelled out to anyone that could show him where the stairs or elevators were. Roy Truly was standing right there and letting Baker know that he was the building manager. He said, follow me, officer, and I will show you. Baker was in such a hurry that he and Truly actually slammed into each other without knowing it as they both attempted to pick the pace up and make it through the swinging door. Finally, they were inside and Truly, at a fast trot, led them to the back of the building in the northwest corner where the service elevator was located. It was almost a diagonal line of travel from the front entrance, almost a southeast to northwest path inside the building. Once they got to the elevator, Truly immediately began to try and work it, pushing the button to call the elevator down to the first floor. Everything was at a standstill until that elevator came. Seconds were ticking by. Then, when the button failed to retrieve the elevator, Truly yelled out, Bring that elevator down here. But nothing happened. And again, Truly yelled the same thing. And again, there was no movement downward of the elevator. Finally, Baker looked at Truly and said, Let's take the stairs. Truly looked back and said, Okay. The stairs were right there, close to the elevator, and they wasted no time beginning a new dash up the stairs. Truly took the lead, and Baker first drew his service revolver, and then, in a split second, came right behind him. In Baker's mind, he was headed to the top of the building, because it seemed to him that is where the shots came from. As Baker came to the second floor, he paused to take a quick scan of the floor area for anyone or anything that might be suspicious. At that very moment, Baker caught just a glimpse of a man walking in a direction away from Baker. Baker immediately began to go in the direction of the man he saw. He moved quickly through a door and a hallway that led to the lunchroom, and there the man was, and he came into full view again. He was now about 20 feet away from Baker and moving quickly in a direction away from Baker. Baker immediately yelled out to the man, saying, come here. In an almost bizarre about-face, The man turned right around and kept his stride, moving swiftly in a direction that was now headed right back toward Baker. This man had nothing in his hand, but Baker still had his service revolver out and drawn. They stopped short of each other, and standing there about three feet from Baker was Lee Harvey Oswald. Baker didn't know that yet. This man, standing straight in front of Baker, was staring down a loaded service revolver pointed right at him, and the gun was getting ever so closer to Oswald's midsection. Oswald didn't show an ounce of emotion or offer a change in expression. Even though he had been moving quickly, he wasn't breathing heavily either, and later, Baker would recall that he showed no signs of exhaustion or exertion. In fact, he was calm and collected. Before Baker could do anything more, Truly had pulled up beside Baker, Truly was ahead of him on the stairs and, glancing back, he realized quickly that he had lost Baker to a detour on the second floor. Truly quickly backtracked the few steps to find Baker in the lunchroom with Oswald. Baker asked Truly, do you know this man? Truly quickly responded, saying, yes, he works here. This was a real moment of history, the outcome of which hung in the balance. Baker was an experienced policeman, and in a split second, he had to assess Oswald. There Oswald was. No one knew who he was yet, really, even though he was less than a couple of hours away from infamy. At that moment, he was still anonymous, but perhaps anything but harmless. His boss had just vouched for him. He was as calm as a cucumber. He was not out of breath. Certainly, he hadn't been running through the building in the midst of an escape. And as Baker would later recount, he didn't seem aroused at all by me calling him. That was enough for Baker. He needed to keep moving. He turned and began his movement back toward the stairs to continue upward. In a moment, he would be back on the stairs, headed toward the top, and Oswald would complete the last leg of his journey to exit from the building. In one very fleeting moment, Oswald was in and out of the clutches of the Dallas police, literally within two minutes after the shots were fired. Oswald had slipped through, and it would not be until after Officer Tippett was killed that he would ultimately be cornered and apprehended in the Texas theater. Later that day, after Oswald was taken into custody, Baker would get a chance to identify him back at the Dallas Police Department and that he did, right there in the homicide offices. But for Baker, at that moment, the search of the depository was not over yet, as they had not yet found their man. Baker and Truly quickly ascended three more sets of stairs, and on the fifth floor, they got back on the east elevator as Truly eyed one that was available on that floor. They took it up to the seventh floor and then exited again, now taking a separate stair that leads to a separate penthouse and onto the roof. From the moment he stepped onto the roof, Baker was looking for evidence that a shot had been made from up there. Maybe it was those pigeons that made him think that. We don't really know, and he never really said. He and Truly quickly made their way to the west side of the building. That part of the roof was enveloped with a five-foot-tall perimeter wall. Baker quickly realized that a shooter wouldn't likely have taken a shot over that wall. They would probably have been on their tippy toes at best. and Baker looked down over the wall, scanning the boxcars and the railroad tracks. There were many officers and a lot of spectators, and people were still running around everywhere. There was, however, a very large Hertz sign situated on top of the building, and the ladder from the roof to the elevated sign caught Baker's eye. He quickly made his way up the ladder and confirmed that no one was hiding in the inner workings of the sign. The ladder was also an untenable place to take a shot from, he decided. There was a small building-like structure on top of the building itself, and Baker took a quick look around it and concluded that there was no evidence of anyone hiding out. Truly had a different thought. He was convinced that the shots had come from over there to the west, from over where the railroad was. There had been a WPA project there from the 1930s during the Depression. That was the reason they referred to the WPA in the description of that area. He was sure that Baker was wasting his time up on the roof of the depository building. He didn't say anything yet to Baker, though. Having satisfied himself that there was no one holding up Up there on the roof, Baker decided the next move was to take the elevator back to the ground floor. Baker and Truly had spent five to ten minutes up on that roof, but in his own mind, it had given him the assurance that there was no shot taken from there. He and Truly started back down again. By the time they got to the seventh floor, Baker warned Truly, Be careful, this man will blow your head off truly couldn't hold back anymore and blurted out, I don't feel like the shots came from the building. We are wasting our time up here. The two quickly made their way downstairs, first retracing their original path up and stepping down through the top stairwell from the roof and then taking the stairs on the seventh floor, making their way back to the west elevator on the fifth floor. These elevators were freight elevators, nothing fancy, and they had wooden slats placed together as a door. You could see through them as the elevator descended the floors, and Baker did just that, keeping a keen eye out for anyone or anything that would lead to the apprehension of the shooter. As they passed the fifth floor, truly recognized one longtime schoolbook depository employee, Jack Dougherty. He appeared to be filling orders. But there was no one else in the way of employees showing up on the floors as they rode down and looked through the slats. Suddenly, on the fourth floor, Baker spotted Inspector Sawyer through the slats. Sawyer worked for the Dallas Police Department. Baker and Truly continued down the elevator, joined by Sawyer, letting Sawyer know that he had thoroughly inspected the roof and cleared it. Soon, Baker would be down at the first floor and was figuring out his next move. Thinking that the next stop was the trademark, he decided to head there. But before he would exit the depository building, two men on the first floor would eye Baker. It caught his attention, but didn't trigger a sinister conclusion. He moved on again. In minutes, he would be redirected to Parkland Hospital, and then finally, after the terrible news was announced that the president was dead, he would make his way to Love Field, as he and others did what they could to provide protection to a new kind of presidential event following on as the hearse took the president's body from parkland back to air force one four months later on a friday on march 20th 1964 baker would work with fbi and secret service agents to recreate the path he took that day in november armed with a stopwatch The other law enforcement officers present would time Baker in two separate events as he recreated what happened from the time of the first shot to the time he would see Oswald in the second floor lunchroom. The first run was done in one minute and 30 seconds at a reasonable pace and then a second attempt done at a faster pace was completed in a time of one minute and 15 seconds. It would be a critical reenactment. If Baker was able to get into the building that fast, then a critical question faced the commission. Could Oswald have descended from the sixth floor in an equally swift manner and reached the lunchroom in even less time? Taking into account the fact that he had to take two more shots, pause for a moment, then place the rifle out of view, then descend the stairs and make his way down to the second floor lunchroom. And do it all in less than one minute and 15 seconds, and not be out of breath one iota, and be so calm and collected after having shot the President of the United States. Yes, this was a brand new time stamp, separate and distinct from the time stamps on the Zapruder film that was becoming critical if authorities were going to prove that there was a reasonable possibility that Oswald was in the shooter's nest at the time the shots were actually fired. On the very same day, March 20th, 1964, Roy Truly, the manager of the depository, would perform a similar reenactment with Secret Service agent Howlett. Only it would be a different route. It would be a reenactment of the route taken that day by Lee Harvey Oswald as Oswald exited the sixth floor and made his way to the second floor lunchroom. They would start at the southeast corner of the sixth floor depository, head north down the east wall and at the northeast corner of the floor they would then turn left and head directly west to the stairwell heading around the elevators and then to the stairwell itself. Truly and Howlett took the stairs because Roy Truly was sure that the two elevators had remained on the fifth floor during this time frame. Those elevators were visually in a position that made it unlikely that they had been taken down by anyone, let alone Oswald, and then returned to those positions on the fifth floor. And in the case of one of the elevators, it would have been a challenge to send it up without someone riding it back up. Howlett and Truly made a stop and simulated the placement of the rifle in the same place that it had been found by officers on November 22nd. They then took the rest of the trip down to the lunchroom on the second floor. They made the trip at a brisk walking pace and even a little faster than that at certain points, trying to simulate how fast they thought Oswald might have made the trip without arousing unusual attention as to his pace. They took and timed the route two times. The result was not much different either time. The first was timed at a minute and 18 seconds, and the second was timed at a minute and 15 seconds. The two separate routes that would converge that day on November 22nd, the path of Marion Baker and the suspected path of Lee Harvey Oswald, both starting from different places, but both terminating at the second floor lunchroom, were within seconds of each other as part of the reenactment that took place on March 20th, 1964. Baker's journey was measured from the moment he heard the first shot, but Oswald had to complete a second and a third shot before he left the so-called shooter's nest. Accordingly, the time it would have taken Oswald to exit the shooter's nest and make his way down to the lunchroom needs to take this extra time into consideration, as it was not part of the official measurements. We know that the time it takes to get off two more rifle shots from the Mannlicher Carcano rifle is 4.6 seconds. Round that to five seconds. In addition, there was at least one eyewitness account that the shooter paused for a minute after the first shot to observe what had just happened, what he had just done, before he receded into the shadows of the building. If we assume that such observation took as much as five seconds, then the sum of those two additional activities would mean that at a minimum, we should add five seconds to the already measured time, and at a maximum, we should add 10 seconds to the already measured time. So, starting with a measured time of one minute and 15 seconds to one minute and 18 seconds, we will add the additional time of five seconds and arrive at a new minimum of one minute and 20 seconds, and a new maximum of one minute and 28 seconds when you add 10 seconds to the original one minute and 18 second maximum. So, somewhere between one minute and 20 seconds and one minute and 28 seconds, is the time after the first shot that Oswald would have arrived in the lunchroom. We now need to compare that to the amount of time it would take Baker to make his way to the lunchroom after the first shot. Baker's trip was somewhere between 1 minute and 15 seconds and 1 minute and 30 seconds. This was like watching a football game and needing instant replay to figure out the truth. It was simply too close to call. If Oswald was on the sixth floor and immediately began his exit, he would have slid into the lunchroom a nanosecond before Marion Baker got there. If Baker's original journey was 1 minute and 15 seconds, then Oswald simply would not have had enough time to get from the sixth floor to the lunchroom. Enough time to get there before Baker arrived. That would mean then that Oswald was not on the sixth floor at the time of the shot and therefore Oswald was not the shooter. I hate to keep using the sports analogy, but this is like a fourth quarter throw into the end zone with no time left on the clock and the catch is made, but no one knows whether his foot came down and touched inbounds or not. We are going to have to review this more than once and from more than one camera angle. Was it enough time or was it not enough time? Was there any other considerations, any other camera angles, so to speak, to make the call on this? After all, the whole idea of whether Oswald was up there on the sixth floor was hanging in the balance. If he wasn't, then he was not the shooter. Thank you for listening to episode 19 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.